<laughs> oh, happy Father's Day, Feliz Dia del Padre for everyone here today. It's a good day. Yeah, put your hands together. Yes. I want to say hello to Maple Grove and uh, all our friends that are gathering together there today. It's a good day. It's a good day to be in air conditioning right now, too. It's getting a little warm outside. Hey, as, uh, as we've walked along throughout the weeks here in Prison Break, our series, uh, it's been a tremendous time. Pastor Nathan opened us up. Last week, didn't Susie do a phenomenal job at stirring the pot? I want to encourage you. Throughout the summer, there's going to be times when you can make it to church and can't make it, but at least go online, listen to the messages, uh, catch up with your church family, stay in tune with what God is doing. We're going through the book of Philippians. In fact, how many have your Bibles? Once you see your Bibles, hold them up, please. Electronic or otherwise, come on. Okay, bring your Bibles to church, study it throughout the week. This week, we're in Philippians chapter three, so you can go ahead and get there and be ready with me. Philippians chapter 3. And uh, the title of my message today is Shape the Future. Shape the Future. Everybody say, Shape the Future. Deep in the heart of every person that was ever born, there is a desire for someone who will believe in us, someone who will help us get to our dreams, someone who will hold us when we hurt or when we fail, someone who will challenge us to get back in the game and to live up to our potential, we want a father. We want someone that will challenge us and grow us. In the Bible, God is identified as a father. Jesus taught us to pray by saying, our father who is in heaven. He often would speak to his us as my children, and he's the ultimate picture of a good, good father. And he signed earthly fathers to be the representation of his loving care and leadership to their families, to provide what biblically is known as the blessing, which is that moment when a kid hears and sees from their father, you're good enough, I approve of you, I believe in you. A good, good father is one biblically that gives that. You know, I see it all the time and we've got a basketball court in our backyard and, and uh, my boys are playing and uh, they hit a shot. And if I'm on the deck or I'm outside on the sidelines, if they make a shot, the very first thing they do is they look over to see if I was watching. <laughs> There's just that thing built inside of all of us that wants to know, did you see me? Did you notice me? Am I good enough to be considered your child? That doesn't mean that everyone has experienced this. I'm saying it's a need built into the DNA of who we are. And not only is a good, good father provide the blessing, but a father disciplines. Hebrews chapter 12 says, and have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you for the Lord disciplines those he loves. He disciplines. And I look at our culture and I recognize that if we're to follow the perfect father who disciplines, we are in trouble because everyone wants to be loved, but not very many people want to be fathered. Yeah, 
If we're truthful, we want his love, his gifts, his kindness, but we're not so sure if we want him to discipline. But God the Father disciplines those who he loves. Fathers are to shape the attitudes and behaviors preparing their kids for the future. In other words, the father isn't thinking just about this moment, but they're thinking about the next two years, the next 15 years, the next 50 years. A good father prepares us for that future. And our enemy has done everything he can to destroy the image of a good, good father in our culture. Since the garden when, in Genesis, when Satan attempted to, to draw Adam and Eve away, he attempts to draw people away from their true destiny, to distract us into compromise and trading substitutes for divine destiny. The damage to fatherhood can be seen everywhere. It can be seen by women and men who have never received the blessing. And they're chasing stuff. They're chasing approval from everything. And it's always empty. You can see it missing in the deep rejection of an earthly father that hurt or abandons people. Sons are growing up without a model or with a bad model. And they grow up to perpetuate dysfunction unintentionally. Kids are looking for approval in destructive ways and they're always wondering, am I good enough? And the worst of it all is I see generations who have given up and no longer attempt to fulfill their God destiny on their life. Now here's the good news. The good news is that God the Father will not leave us alone. He's not just gonna let us go and let us be nothing and, and worried for the rest of our lives. No, he sent his son and he proclaimed that for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son. The father was interested in us. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And not only that, but he establishes a family that we all can be a part of. A family where everyone is chosen and adopted into that family. And in that family, the church... He provides spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. And he provides the context for us to grow up into all that he has for us to discover our destiny. Today, I want you to understand that a father cares about his kids and their future. And this is why as we look at Philippians chapter three, you and I need to understand that Paul is writing to his children, his spiritual sons and daughters. Paul himself had gone through many different experiences in his life. And then he went out and planted churches in many different places. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see different stopping points. They're called missionary journeys or church planting journeys where he'd go out and he'd plant churches and then he'd come back. The first place he came back to was Antioch. The second place he came back to was Jerusalem. And those are various seasons of his life. You know that we all go through different seasons. And Paul went through different seasons. As he went through seasons, he went through a planting season, but he also went through learning seasons. And finally, he reaches the point in his journey where he's in prison. Nobody wants to be there, but this becomes his giving season. And as he's in prison, he's sitting there and there's a lot of time to think in prison. <laughs> Too much time, actually. But he's sitting there, 
And he's away from his children. He's away from his kids. He's away from all those that he cares about. And you would think that there's, this is the worst season of his life. You would think there's nothing good that could come out of this time period. But the reality is, it's the best of Paul's time. He wrote three letters of the New Testament from prison. He wrote Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians. And he wrote it to his kids. Now, I want you to think about this because as Paul is sitting in prison and he's thinking about his life and he doesn't know if he'll ever get out, he's thinking about what's most important. He's considering what are the things that have happened in my life. And he begins to recall in his own journey mistakes that he made. He was a very zealous Jew who had spent time studying the religion, rose through the ranks of the Pharisees, becomes an excellent leader, and thinks that the Christian movement that started is actually anti the God he serves. And he begins to kill Christians. You read it in Acts. He begins to kill Christians thinking he's doing a favor to God until Jesus arrests him and he realizes I'm not doing what's right. And as he realizes that, he begins to turn away and go the route of the Christians. It would be the equivalent of somebody leaving ISIS today and turning into a Christian who would preach the gospel. He begins to preach the gospel and he also remembers those mistakes. He remembers every child he murdered, every Christian, every family that lost a dad or a mom. And he has deep regrets. He thinks about his own life, and yet he also thinks about his own personal struggles, and he, he's in a tug-of-war. Anybody here ever been in a tug-of-war? You've been in a tug-of-war? In the tug-of-war in your own soul, you want to do the right thing, but you don't do the right thing? And he, he remembers those struggles. He still has them in prison, and you could read Romans, and he talks about the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. And he, he talks about real-life stuff because internally he knows he still has struggles himself. And as he sits there, not only does he think about himself, but he begins to think about his kids. You see, as a parent, you know all of the things you've done, things you haven't shared with anybody. You remember all of the stuff that is like, oh man, I regret doing that. And then, you begin to think about, I don't want my kids to go through that. Hello? I don't want my kids to do what I did. And Paul is sitting in prison thinking about his daughter churches. And he begins to say, I need to tell them something. I need to help them. I need to help them make it. And he begins to pen Philippians. And by the time he gets to chapter 3, verse 1, says this. Whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things. And I do it to safeguard your faith. Did you know your faith needs to be safeguarded? Turn to the person next to you and say, safeguard your faith. And then he begins to warn us as children. 
Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, who's mutilate, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Paul is speaking to his kids from prison. And he's thinking about what should I tell them to watch out for? And word has reached him that people were coming into the church trying to tell these new Philippian believers that you gotta work your way into being a good person. That somehow you gotta become, you gotta go through 10 years of classes and you gotta know all the biblical language and you gotta memorize the 16 fundamentals of faith in the assemblies of God. <laughs> You need to know the four spiritual laws. You need to know, understand all those things. You need to go through steps. And this was the church that Paul had planted that did not have a Jewish background. It was a Gentile church. And all they knew was is that to follow Jesus was by faith. And now somebody was coming along and telling them they needed to work themselves up into being something. And Paul is saying, wait, stop the bus. Don't listen to those voices. They're trying to make you be like them. They're religious zealots. They're trying to make you go through the hoops. And it's really, we rely on Christ. We rely on Jesus if we have hope. Friends, I want you to hear me today. There are many people under the sound of my voice that you come to church and you look around the room and you think, man, there's all these people in the church and they're so perfect and they know more than I do. Or you might remember all of your own junk. And it, it kind of comes up and Satan has a way of reminding you, doesn't he, in church. Of how you're not good enough. And you look around the room and you think, those people are far more spiritual than I am. I can't do anything for God until I'm around for 10 years. And I would just say, it's a lie from the pit of hell. Paul would say to you, it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. And only Jesus that makes you right. You follow him, and he makes you right. But he says, watch out for those voices, because there's going to be voices that try to distract you, try to get you to stop, try to worry. He goes on in verse 7, he says, I once thought that these things were valuable. He's talking about his own efforts and how he had climbed the ladder, and he was a Pharisee, and he, was, he had all the degrees, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded anything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on what? Faith. 
I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that has raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. This is a powerful moment because Paul is describing a change in how he saw the world. In order to be successful before, he knew he had to climb the ladder. He had to get the right degrees. He needed to get the promotion, start the business, oversee many people. He needed to get the right spouse. He needed to get, go through whatever it meant to be successful. In today's world, we've got all kinds of things that people count as successful. And Paul had gone through all of that and he reached the time when he realized it was a waste of my search. He didn't mean that all of his study of the word was worthless because God used his study of the word. But he discovered that at the end of it all, success comes from knowing Jesus. In fact, and for him, success was knowing Christ. He had made this mental assessment where he would turn and change his priorities. The old priorities, the old pursuit, the things that he was chasing now went in the garbage can. And now he was chasing something different. Do you know how freeing this moment could be for any of us? Because we're always looking for approval. We're wanting to know, are we good enough? When are we going to get there? When am I going to know? I've reached it. And when you get there, you find out, now what, right? But you can go to different levels of achievement and Christ will take you there. But it's worthless unless you're doing it because you know Jesus. When Jesus is at the center, those pinnacles of success become instruments for his glory and it's worthwhile. But when you get there and it was only for your own satisfaction and identity, it's worthless. It's empty. And Paul is saying, listen, no matter what level of leader you are, no matter what individual level of achievement that you've reached, it doesn't matter unless you know Christ. And he said, now my one ambition is to know him. I want to become like him. I want to go all the way and be a part of the resurrection if I could. And of course he can. Come on, somebody. See, we look at life differently when we think back over the years, don't we? The things that you chased when you were a teenager, the things that you chased earlier decades, how many know some of those things were worthless? As worthless as hula hoops and leg warmers. Paul's sitting there and he's thinking in prison and he's thinking about what's really important. As Pastor Dwight Denyes used to say, life is best lived forward, but understood looking backward. He was thinking back and he was drawing wisdom from what he remembered. And he's saying, here's what I learned. Chase Jesus, know Jesus. In fact, at this moment, turn to the person next to you and say, chase Jesus, know Jesus. Verse 12, he goes on to say, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things. In other words, there's still more out ahead. Or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Does anybody in here know how crazy it was that God chose you? When I think about me, I am not choosable, but he still chased me down. And Paul is saying, I want to chase that original reason God got after me in the first place. 
No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree at some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we've already made. This is a powerful moment because Paul is beginning to say there's something God is calling us to. Let me ask you, church, can you feel God calling you towards the prize? Or do you find yourself living for the empty moments of a day? He's calling and he's calling us. And Paul is saying we can chase the prize that's out there. And in order to do that, he says that I had to forget the past and look forward to what is ahead. What is he referring to here? Is he referring to his religious past before his conversion, his trials and his tribulations since his conversion, or both? And the answer can be all of the above. We don't know exactly what he's referring to forgetting, but we do know this. He's using directional language. He's saying to look back is to go back, or at worst, not go forward. He says, I need to chase something, that prize, so I can't look back. He's using directional language. And then what did he mean by forget? He meant to neglect. Everybody said neglect. To neglect something is to let it go. I'll drive by some streets and see that somebody's let their yard go. And what's the first thing that comes to mind? Somebody needs to cut the grass, right? It's neglected. Marriages can be neglected. Love can be neglected. Your faith can be neglected. Your health can be neglected. But what Paul is saying is, he's saying, I'm not going to pay attention to the memories that pull me back. I'm not going to pour over it in my mind. I'm not going to give it place in my present or my future. That part of my life that I regret is real, but I'm not gonna give it partnership. It's going to get lonely, that memory is, because I'm not going to be its friend anymore. So listen, let me ask you a question. As you think back, this is a very real thing, and it happens to me all the time when I talk to people. All of us have memories, and sometimes they come um, back to us even when we don't ask for them, right? So I'm not saying that your mind forgets it and it's forever gone. But when it comes, what do you do with the memory, the negative stuff? So I, I'd love to have you and I develop our own neglect list. You know, a to-do list? Well, what about a neglect list? Things that you know you're not going to pay attention to. In fact, take a piece of paper out and write on there, neglect list. What are the things that I should not pay attention to? Negative things need neglect. True? Attitudes, experiences, words that were spoken to us can stall our futures if we let them dominate our thinking. Somebody said something to you and it stalls you for years. I've met people who are so bitter because of something someone did to them that they were totally unavailable to God's prize to chase because they're bound up in a certain moment of their story. And often it's because of what something someone else did to them. And the biggest weapon of the enemy is to feed you bait to keep thinking about that person. 
And if you can learn to neglect it, not bring it up, you're going to be all right. You won't be able to neglect it if you don't forgive. Forgiving doesn't mean they were right. Forgiving means I give up my right to be the judge. I'm letting them go. But they're getting away with telling other people. They're not sharing the true story of who they are and everything else. But the moment that you start paying attention to that and worried about the injustice of them getting away with it is the moment you become the judge. There is only one judge. There's only one. I've met people that have taken the bitterness of pain from what people have done to them and it's gone inside them and the other, the person that hurt them has lived their life as if nothing ever happened. But that bitterness goes in them like poison. You need to let the poison go and neglect the memory. It's gonna come up again, but you can say, I brought that to the Lord already. He's the judge. I've taken to him, I'm not gonna give attention to that part of my life. Others, there's deep disappointment in losing something, losing a job, losing a loved one, a fracture in a close relationship. But if we recite all the negative all the time, Our direction follows the focus of our attention and God's vision for our life gets neglected. It's God's vision that's neglected because we're paying attention to something else. Paul says forgetting. Forgetting, I-N-G, the suffix at the end of that word is an ongoing basis. In other words, it means it may require regular intentional neglect. I remember neglecting that when it comes up. How many know some people like to take you back into the conversation. You know what I would say? Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait of your relative that wants to pull in and remember how bad your dad was to you and how bad your mom was to you and everything else. Don't take the bait. Don't get caught up in that because as soon as you get into that, your direction changes. You stop chasing the very things that God is putting on your heart because you're wound up in the past of something that's already happened. That could include good things. Maybe you had great memories of times that you spent with the Lord and God helped you out. And and if you don't look out, you're resting on yesterday's experiences and you need a fresh touch from Jesus today. Paul said, verse 12, looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race. Paul's entire goal for life was changing. He was moving forward. To follow Christ is to have a tug to the future toward an ever-increasing establishment of his kingdom. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Let me ask this question. What are you hoping for? If faith is the substance of things hoped for, the confidence of things hoped for, you don't have faith if you're not hoping for something. What are you hoping for? What do you want to see in the future? Do you have dreams for your spiritual life? Do you have dreams for the future of your kids or your grandkids or your friends or your spiritual kids? Do you have dreams for them? What are those? Listen, a lack of things to hope for equals a lack of faith. A lack of things to hope for equals a lack of faith. Verse 1 said, safeguard your faith. It's important. Turn to verse 17 there because this is the hinge you might be listening to me today and going pastor
Pastor Nate, I know I should be this. I know I should do those things. I know I should forget. I know I should, 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 should. And when you hear should, it becomes this like repeating thing in your head. Like I'm never going to be good enough. I, I might as well quit because I've tried before. And you think I can't make it. And you hear this and it can feel much like shame. But I'm telling you, the word of God does not come in to bring you to shame. It comes to bring you up, to build you up. And Paul says right in the middle of this, he says in verse 17, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. You know what he's saying? He's saying, maybe you don't have that earthly dad or mom that can tell you how to live. Maybe you didn't get trained in the right way. Maybe you, you don't know what to do next. Maybe you're stuck. The way out isn't just by trying harder. It's by following spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. It's by following the example of the people in the family of God who are making the way. Can I get an amen? You see, in this room, in this room are halfway completed projects. We're not done yet. You might be going through something that you feel like is overwhelming and you think you're the only one that's ever experienced what you've experienced. But I guarantee you in this church, there are people on the other side of the room in the lobby, perhaps sitting right next to you who have made their way through and they've made it. They followed Jesus. They found Jesus in the middle of it. And if you can join them, follow them, follow their pattern, you will discover that you can follow Jesus too. You're not alone in this journey. It's not all just on you. I feel like I'm going to get a priest up on me now. There are people in this room that have gone through a divorce. They've experienced the pain, the deep horror of, of, the, of the ripped apart life. And in the middle of a divorce, you could feel like, man, I'll never have any future. Many people that go through divorce, they leave the church because they feel shame. They shouldn't leave the church. They should stay in the church because right in the room is somebody else that's gone through the same kind of experience as you. And they made their way out. God still had a future for them. And he's still got a future for you. Mm, mm, mm. There are people in the house that are sitting here going, but I never had a dad, an earthly dad, to, to show me how to live. And I don't know how to be the man in the relationship. I don't know how to be the, the woman in the relationship. I don't know what to do. Your answer isn't just in reading the word. Your answer isn't just in trying harder. Your answer is finding a model in Jesus Christ and following their pattern and how God is using them. Come on, somebody. That's the Christian Bible that I'm reading. Paul is saying, hey, he did it from prison. Just because you don't have the people close to you, just because your kids have now grown up and moved out of the home, doesn't mean that your modeling for your kids is over. It doesn't mean that your fatherhood or motherhood is over. You can still bring the heat. Come on, somebody. Verse 18, for I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. 
but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our savior. He'll take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Let me just say this. If we're following the examples, it'll lead towards that bright future where Jesus will take us. So between now and the end of time when Jesus calls us home, we've got time. And our responsibility, he said in verse 17, was to pattern our lives after his. A pattern is something you do. A pattern is something you do. It's not something you just read. You actually have to do it with it. When I coached football, we had wide receivers that would do patterns, we called them. So they could do a post pattern, which is straight down and ahead towards the, t- the field goal post, and maybe the quarterback will throw it. You can do uh, an out pattern. You can go up in 10 yards and then out. You can do a button hook. I mean, there's all kinds of different patterns. Everybody said patterns. But just because the pattern is there, you're not doing the pattern until you step into it and you actually follow it. When it comes to what Paul is saying, he's saying we need to begin to do our faith, but we need to do it as we follow others who are doing it. I want to take a moment, little side moment, just with the men. Ladies, you can listen in if you'd like. (laughs) Men are born to do. They don't want to just sit and listen. They want to do stuff. They want to get their hands in it. Even if it breaks, it's worth doing, right? From the time a little boy is raised, they, they, want, to, they want to get involved in stuff. They want to, they want to work and they want to, they want to accomplish things. And so they, they try to accomplish things by doing something, athletic competition or uh, video games or something else. And a lot of those things are really good but they don't have the godly prize at the end of it necessarily. And men are meant to do something. But when we think about our faith, and I look at our church, one of my greatest concerns is I feel like we have passive faith where somebody else does it, but we're not really doing anything. Guys come to church, they sit, Maybe they'll worship. Maybe they'll clap their hands if they're really happy that day. They might lift their hands. They might even say amen. Many of the men that come to church come to church only because the woman that's with them made them come to church. And they sit there passively. And they wonder why their faith is kind of low. And the reason their faith is low is because it's a passive faith. You need active faith. Active faith means that I'm doing something with my faith. And if you are following a pattern, you need to find a spiritual mentor, a spiritual father who is further along than you that you begin to watch. But you don't just watch them. You don't just ask them for advice. You don't just take them out for coffee and talk about nice things. Women do that, okay? Talking is good. Talking is good. But I'm saying, guys, if you really want your faith to be energized, it's not going to be because you get into a long conversation with somebody. Some of you guys, a 500-word limit on your day, let's be honest. And it's already spent when you come home, right? 
What you need to do is you need to chase a guy who's already doing something. They're serving. They're doing ministry. They're active. And you begin to do life with them. It doesn't mean that you're into everything they do, but that you follow them. There are many men in our church that are involved in a hundred different ministries in our church. They're out in the parking lot, they're door hosts, they're in men's ministry, they're in, they're in kids' ministry, they're doing all kinds of different ministries, and they're doing it alone because nobody's chasing them. And maybe some of the men in here that have passive faith, passive faith, maybe you need to get out of the pew and get involved with some other ministry where you can chase the faith of somebody else where their pattern is reproduced inside of you. Ah, I told you I was about to preach. It's coming on me now. And don't think that this is just another plea for volunteers. Some pastor trying to talk you into doing something. I'm asking you, if you are not growing in faith, maybe it's because you're not doing anything with your faith. Maybe it's because you need to get off your rear end and start doing something. Parents, okay, I'm bringing both genders back into play here. Parents, your kids will live out what you live out in front of them. Let me say it again. Your kids will live out what you live out in front of them. Whatever you do will become a part of what they become. And it's important to think about their future, their faith. Out of all the patterns in the world, which ones are you following? Are you following the spiritual fathers and mothers? Are you leading as a spiritual father and mother to those behind you? And are you listening to the voices that will direct you where you need to go? I've been thinking a lot this week about my grandpas and my dad and my sons and spiritual fathers and what they've said to me. Many of you know that Dr. Gordon Anderson is a president of North Central. He's in his last year there and spent a lot of time with me. And uh, I've got pictures of each of these people. Dr. Anderson used to say some things like, my job is to help you suffer. (laughs) (laughs) What he meant by that is his job was to get me ready for something down the road. And he allowed me to go through pain. He didn't just sit there and go, ooh, it's okay. It's all right. I feel bad for you. No, he's, buck up and take it, boy. You can do this. You know? So I th- sometimes I think we've been mama too much. Nobody's heard no. Nobody says, you can do this. It's all right to cry once in a while, but get up again. You got to go to work tomorrow. He used to tell the students at North Central, be the president of your dorm room. I was thinking about Pastor Mark Denyus, the founding pastor of this church. I served for 10 years as a youth pastor underneath him. He dedicated our kids and all four of our boys in different moments. He modeled it. He never was one to have lots of conversations with me or sit down and chit-chat, but he was a father to me. And I remember some of the things he would say. He'd say, stay holy, hungry, and humble. He'd say, it's all about Jesus. And when in doubt, preach the word. Now, he's gone to be with the Lord three years ago now. But how many know his words still echo in my head? Probably the greater, greatest voice of my life was my dad. In fact, dad, why don't you stand up right over here, please? I just want to honor you today. 
Maple Grove. My dad's there in the third row, and it's always been with me. I've got a picture of him with me in high school. I had my letter jacket. I don't know what it's like for my dad to raise me back then. He often would say he had some ideas about my future. He didn't know exactly what it would be. But he had some phrases that made an impact on me. A roost never quits. I'm disappointed in your behavior, but I love you. Attitude check, which I had to respond with, praise the Lord. (laughs) If you can't keep your room clean, how can God trust you with this church? (laughs) And this was a really important one. He taught me when I was young, when you're looking at the girls, look from the neck up. I bet you there's a lot of guys here that wish you would have heard that. There's a lot of guys here that need to be saying that and showing that to the next generation. Come on, somebody. Mostly I remember my dad just saying, I believe in you, son. And I've got a picture of him at my college graduation and high-fiving me. And uh, he really, really believed in me and cheered me on, still does. I get texts from my dad all the time. But I must not forget my own sons as I think about the generation ahead of me. I must think of my boys. We call them the boys. That's our phrase. David, Jeff, and Tim, and Josiah. I'm asking myself the question, what will they hear from me? What will they tell their kids? What will my spiritual kids hear from me? I'm asking the question of my spiritual kids. If I were Paul and I were writing a letter to you, Emmanuel, I would say you gotta go for the prize. You gotta shut out the voices around you you got to find Jesus in the middle of whatever it is that you're going through. And if you're confused about up and down and whether or not you're loved or not, it comes back to finding spiritual fathers and mothers in the Lord and chasing their pattern. Because if you can, you'll discover that the voice of heaven will cancel out the voice of hell. I close with a story that I shared just a few years ago about my grandpa Roosh. My grandfather, my dad's dad, was this hero guy to me. He was saved. He was a single-parent home. Mom uh, most likely had been involved in prostitution to take care of. And my grandfather followed Jesus. And as he followed Jesus, he just did the simple thing day after day after day. He prayed. He loved God. He did a full-time job working a secular job while he pastored churches throughout Illinois, Iowa. Then the time came as I grew older and I moved into being a youth pastor and my grandpa retired. He was still volunteering in Royal Rangers, boys ministry in a church. And I had the privilege of taking my grandpa with me on a missions trip out of Emmanuel to Chile, Santiago, Chile, back in the 90s. 
And we got down there and I'd gone on this kind of epic trip with my grandpa and these teenagers. And my grandpa had prostate cancer. And he somehow outworked everyone on the trip. I remember we had to go up this real high hill over, they had this statue of the mother Mary over the city of Santiago. He climbed like 15,000 steps and outdid everyone else. And, and I remember uh, one night um, at the end of the day, he had just preached to a prison and 400 men gave their life to Jesus. And I sat, I stayed in a room with my grandpa and we got in the room. And as we got in the room, we sat there and I started asking him questions about my dad and family. And finally, as the night kind of wore down, he said, are you done? Are you done talking? I said, yes. I was tired. He said, good, because I'm going to take my hearing aids out, and after I do, I won't hear whatever it is that you say. <laughs> and so he put them on the nightstand, and I was ready to go to sleep. I said, good night, Grandpa. And he got out of bed, and he laid down. And he went down over the ground, and he began to pray. And he began to pray for every kid of his and every grandkid and every great-grandkid. And he prayed for every kid on this missions team. And he prayed for over 20 minutes. My grandpa was not a quiet prayer, by the way. I'm in the bed next to him going, I just need to get saved. You know, (laughs) this guy is showing me out. But you know what he was doing? He was living a pattern as a spiritual father that I've never forgotten. Fast forward just a few months, maybe a year later, cancer had taken my grandpa's body. And he was in and out, he was in hospice, in and out of consciousness. We were driving, Jody and I were driving up to the youth pastor retreat in Alexandria. And Jody says to me, she felt prompted, you need to call your grandpa. So I did on the cell phone and I called him up and my grandma answered the phone and she said, uh, hi, and I said, is grandpa, awake? Can he talk today? Because he was in and out. And she said, actually, he's awake. Let me go see if I can get him. Just a few seconds later, grandpa's on the phone. And I said, grandpa, the body's kind of failing you, huh? He said, yeah, it's about time for me to go. He said, I've done everything I can do. In a sense, he was saying like Paul, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. And this is what he said to me. He said, Nathan, the baton is in your hands now. It's been, how many years has it been since grandpa died, dad? Over 10? I will never forget that. Because guess what? The baton's still in my hands. And guess what? I'm gonna hand it off to my boys and their kids. And I'm gonna run the race to win the race. Philippians 3.13. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Would you stand on both campuses?